0: It's great to find a job where you feel like you're contributing and all of that's a, a wonderful part of choosing a profession, but it, it doesn't mean that you're going to make
1: more money. Welcome to Act in Line a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Dr. Angela Dills, a labor economist who teaches at Western Carolina University and whose work focuses on the economics of education, crime, and health, talks with Dan Huger about her research into the gender wage gap. Do women really only earn 83 cents for every dollar a man earns? Do the data represent a true apples to apples comparison? How much of the gender wage gap can be accounted for by discrimination? How do women participate in the labor market differently than men? And what are promising new avenues of research that help economists better understand the gender pay gap? You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Actonline Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
2: Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, librarian and research associate with the Acton Institute. Today on Acton Line, I'm joined by Angela Dills the Gimmelstob landry Distinguished Professor of Regional Economic Development at Western Carolina University. She received her BA from the University of Virginia and MA and PhD from Boston University, previously held, holding faculty positions at Clemson, Mercer, Wellesley, and Providence College. She is a labor economist whose research focuses on the economics of education, crime, health, and especially policy issues such as school choice, accountability, peer effects, college quality, and alcohol and drug prohibition. Her research has appeared in numerous peer-reviewed journals, but today we're excited to talk about the gender wage gap. Not that we're excited by the fact that there is a gender wage gap, but this is something that people hear about all the time. They have friends, relatives, politicians share statistics on social media with them, you see it in newspapers. Almost every month, there is a story from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Um, And Angela, I guess when we start, those sorts of statistics, when they appear in those sorts of forms, what are they generally relaying? Um, Not everything on the internet is true. We know that. Um, But what are those generally portraying? And then what is it when a Is it something different that economists talk about and that social scientists talk about when they talk about the gender wage gap?
0: Great. So thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, Well, I'll give you one example. So I get uh, an email from TIAA, who is the company that holds our retirement savings, as with lots of academics. And the email says... Um, women, on average, women earn 83 cents on the dollar compared to men. That's a pretty typical number. Yep. Um, that's probably the number you've heard or something like that in the radio uh, or in the news, or you see something about equal payday or something like that. That's typically the number floated around, and it's a it's a correct number. There's nothing. It's factual, right? Yeah. If you sort of took all full time, full year working women and adult women and compare them to how much they earn for the similar full-time, full-year adult men, that number is 83 cents on the dollar. I think what's a little misleading about the number is it's all women and it's all men. and They're not controlling for anything. And I think when a lot of people think about a gender wage gap um, in their head, they're thinking, that we're comparing apples and apples, which is what social scientists are doing. Social scientists are really concerned if we look at men and women in the same profession with the same kind of backgrounds, are they being paid similarly? And I think that's sort of the, the nuance that these, commonly cited figures lacks.
2: Yeah, because the implication for a lot of folks when they read that number without that context is they see disparities in the world and they assume that those disparities are attributable to discrimination. Um, you know, if you know, because all the information that's relayed is, you know, there are men that are earning this much. There are women that are earning this this much. And there's no other context. And we're very sensitive, and I think rightfully so, to discrimination in the labor force. These things, you know, these things happen. There are people who, you know, win successful civil lawsuits all the time for gender, race, religious discrimination in the workplace. This happens. And because these are also things that appear in the headlines and they see this and they see this number, they assume that those two are— the same that that disparity is the result of discrimination now when social scientists dig deep and look in and and actually start start to compare the apples to the apples what sort of things do they find that make up for that difference
0: great so uh, can I give you a little labor economics Absolutely, lessons? yeah. <laughs> Great. So when a, a labor economist, economist is kind of thinking about why people get paid, how much they get paid, we, we typically think about two or three big things. Um, one of the biggest is human capital. So what kind of skills and how many skills does the worker have? Um, and men and women compare interestingly on that margin, right? So when, when I think about, Skills we're thinking about going to school, staying in school for a lot more years. Women do that, right? Women in the U.S. are better educated than men in the U.S. And at this point, it doesn't really matter how you measure that (laughs) at all degree levels. And it's been true for a while. It's probably I think women passed men in going to college in in about 1980. So it's I mean that's more than 40 years now, right? So um, women are better educated. Which doesn't help us explain the gender wage gap, because that should mean that women get paid more. Um, But women generally have less experience, which is another big way that you can gain human capital is by working in your job either longer hours or more years. Uh, And in both of those margins, women tend to work less. On average, women work a shorter day. Even full-time women work a shorter workday than full-time men do. Um, women are more likely to work part time, and women are more likely to exit, enter, and exit. Sort of have some labor market intermittency. So they might leave to um, have a baby, or raise their children, or take care of their elderly parents, or for lots of reasons. Right? Yeah. Women may are much more likely to exit the labor market uh, and take care of family matters. Um, but in doing so, they're not gaining the equivalent experience that a man the same age would be gaining.
2: yeah and there is there are a lot of places where there are standard contract there are labor contracts where things like seniority are are part of the structure of pay very explicitly in certain professions um, or in certain corporate structures Um, when we talk about education and the, the counterintuitive Thing there is, we have we have more women going to college, and yet we don't see. Is it is it the type of education they're receiving? Is it a question of what fields they're getting into? Is it a question of um, do they use their degrees in the labor market as frequently as men do? That's perhaps another way is that women. Go to university for whatever reason, they end up in the labor market in fields that maybe don't match what their education would be, where it's not valued by employers. I, and these are just the kind of things that yeah, I'm thinking no, what could explain question. this. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I can certainly address the first piece, which is that although women attend college, graduate from college, get graduate degrees at Greater rates than do men. They study very different things. So men and women make different choices about the kinds of fields they go into, um, not to the same degree they did when, say, my my mother, who graduated college around 1970, did. Where you know, a woman at that at that time, you know, her choice was to be a nurse, to be a teacher, to be a homemaker. She studied education. It's very common. It's still a heavily female profession, as is nursing. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, so we see significantly less of that, right? Women major in lots of different things, um, but they're much more likely to major in kind of more caring professions, again, like education and health, and less likely to major in more quantitative fields like physics or engineering or chemistry, uh, which tend to also pay a whole lot better, right? So, so
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, when you mentioned those caring professions, uh, particularly education in this country, but also nursing in many regions of this country are highly unionized, fields and a lot of those contracts, and this is sort of the legacy of early trade unionism in America where it's got industrial applications, you have those seniority ways of dealing with Pay, um, and I'm 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 wondering if that is an impact, or is it that is it something that because you look at is it a question of is it high earners that are skewing this? So, for instance, you know, to be a teacher and a nurse in this country is to make. Um, You know, not, you know, you're not going to get fabulously wealthy doing those things. But those are professions that are compensated at a professional level. And those are pathways that generations of people, men and women, have used as entry points into the middle class. Is there is there something is is it just that there's there's enough of that, there's enough STEM money, you know, in the in the high performing STEM folks, that it throws it off uh, a little bit.
0: I see. What well, so? I think it's probably two things. I think one, um, which we can talk about in a, a lot more detail. I think too, but when people are choosing a job or a profession, people generally do and should care about their full package of compensation. So, does you care yes. about? Um, how much they're paid, like their wage, their salary, their benefits, which may be significantly different for teachers, for example, than it is for other professions. Um, but they also care about sort of their job characteristics. Yeah. And generally speaking, we a, a pleasant job, a job that brings you value, that makes you feel good about yourself, where you feel like you're making a difference, isn't going to have to pay you as much for you to be willing to take it. Because part of your compensation is coming and feeling good about the work you're doing. Um, and so people will accept a lower salary to work in jobs that make feel where they feel like they're making a difference, um, which is good. And I mean, you sh- it's great to find a job where you feel like you're contributing and all of that's a, a wonderful part of choosing a profession, but it, it doesn't mean that you're going to make more money. And if women are more likely to choose a job out of their love for, children or their love for helping people who are ill, then that means they will get paid less. Yeah. The fact that they're unionized there, that's interesting that you bring, I hadn't really thought about that piece of it. I mean, union workers, there's typically a premium to working yes. in a union and it's historically like 10% more, right? So if anything, that should be offsetting some of these differences in, in gender pay. Yeah. So.
2: so if we look, so we've looked at skills, we've looked at education what are some of the other things that economists have found in, in examining in examining this labor market and trying to answer this question?
0: Well, so the the flip side of choosing a, a caring profession and getting paid less for that is choosing a really dangerous profession and getting paid more for wow. that. Right, and men, uh, on average, are significantly more likely to go into dangerous occupations, whether that's joining the military, the being a fire. But, firefighter a police officer whatever it might be and if we compare sort of jobs that require similar skills but are less dangerous there's a return to taking a dangerous job you're getting compensated for bearing that risk as a worker for the fact that you might be harmed at at work Um, and so that sort of a whole host of job characteristics like that are going to also contribute to explaining some of this gap between men and women
2: yeah do you find so there's that there's that question that premium, I guess danger premium is what we could call it. Um but there's also um and, and you mentioned this earlier, but I was wondering, you know, there are also orders all sorts of non-monetary compensation. Do you know of any economists that have looked, uh, are these are these numbers, when we compare them, when we talk about the wage gap, are they wages or do they factor in, you know, because there are some things, you know, quality of life, that's very hard to measure. You know, the, the feeling you get at the end of the day, helping children learn how to read, that's very difficult to measure. However, like a health insurance plan is very easy to measure.
0: Right. Uh, and typically, we don't have very good data on that. So okay. it's so again, that raw gender gap is not thinking about benefits at all. Um, okay. um, I don't, I'm not even sure I have a prior belief as to sort of how that might differ between mm. men and women. That's a good question
2: because when you were talking about these dangerous jobs that that, Men take uh disproportionately. I was thinking, you know, I had several friends in high school that moved to Alaska. High school graduates, they went out, they worked on fishing boats, and they were they were skiers. And they did it because they could make enough money in half a year to spend the other half of the year skiing. Um, so you know, dangerous recreation, dangerous work, um, but they loved it. But None of them had health insurance. I mean, they were paid like a, like a, like a. I mean, I think I think there was, those weren't those considerations were not their considerations. Their considerations was you know how much cash at the end of the week.
0: Can I stock away? Can I stock away? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) love it. Um, (laughs) um, So men, on average, like risk more than women do. So that's probably not unusual. Sort of, we think about. Of men being much more likely to take on those jobs. They're also fairly physical, yeah. physically demanding jobs, which um, men are also more likely to take physically demanding jobs, which pay more. Um, but they don't have benefits. Right. But the the flip side of that, they're also part-time workers, I assume, yeah. at least. Or, I mean, because sort of they're part-year workers, yeah, if nothing else. Right. Workers, so yeah. they're um, and a lot of women are working part-time mm-hmm. and also then probably not getting benefits. So yes. I think that may be offsetting some of it. So I think there's a no, lot of things yeah. going on, which makes it really hard for me to guess kind of how um, – who's more likely to get health insurance, right? Women yeah. are more likely to be public employees, I think, So yes. which I also typically implies health insurance. So <laughs> Do you see a difference
2: in uh, the for-profit and nonprofit sector? In employment, um,
0: I don't know that off the top of my head. My guess would be that women are more likely to be in nonprofits. Yeah, but I don't know for a fact.
2: I mean, my experience—I so. I work What's for a nonprofit. Experience? Yes, true. And, and, my, and my, <laughs> my experience with nonprofits is that nonprofits um, tend to focus on offering a sort of. More comprehensive vision of what compensation is. I feel that I'm paid very fairly by the Acton Institute, but I also have excellent benefits. And I imagine that you know, um, and the and the folks that I've talked to that work in other nonprofit settings, that's that's you know not necessarily even think tanks, but that seems to be. How those human resources departments have deployed the resources to recruit and maintain talent. Um, so those are interesting questions. Now, this is very well, and speculative. Suspect, yeah, no, it and is, is, I'm saying, no,
0: it's great though. I'm right, making notes like, oh, I should figure that out. That's a great question. And, and I suspect, you know, the type of person who wants to work in a nonprofit also would strongly prefer having good benefits and it's cheaper to get those benefits from your employer than it is to buy them yourself, generally speaking. And so, um, it's probably a win all around, right? Mm -hmm. The employer can compensate you more, um, by providing you benefits instead of cash and you're happier because you got benefits you really value.
2: Right. So when we look at, when we take out these other factors, what does it look like in the aggregate? What, what do economists think that, you know, The discrimination end of this is actually accounts for.
0: So when we take out sort of the observable differences, so education, experience, industry, occupation, um, we're left with somewhere around five to seven cents. So like 95, sort of put it in the same sense, 95 to 93 cents on the dollar. So we're going to explain like two thirds or three quarters of it through observable differences in the choices men and women have made. And economists being economists, we're going to call all the part we can't explain discrimination. That's just, that's sort of our definition. If it's not based on something observable, then we're just going to call it that residual piece we call discrimination. so.
2: So if, if this is the case, do employers now have an arbitrage opportunity in the market And should they be looking to hire more women and both contribute to the closing of that gap, but also get an excellent return on the labor market by employing women? And are there legal barriers to that sort of thing? Because we do have gender discrimination laws and employment and this sort of thing. Because it seems to me like, you know, Seven cents is a lot less is a, is a lot less stark than the, the the original number we talked about, but that's still a lot of money
1: over up. a year, yes. over
2: a career, and, right. and over a payroll for a business.
0: Right. Um, so I was looking up the the name. There's a, I saw a TED Talk. Her name is Dame Stephanie Shirley. So she founded a woman-only computing company in 1962. She tells a lovely story about yeah. it. Um, and I bring it up because she's a computer scientist in 1962, couldn't get a job as a woman. And so she's like, I'm just going to hire a bunch of women. Yeah. And I was like, and that's exactly what you would expect to see in a world where there's lots of discrimination like there was in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that a whole lot less now, mm-hmm. right? Um and in part i think it's because there isn't just there just isn't that kind of margin for most firms to make to make enough money off of it but that would be a reasonable thing to do right if you can hire a woman for you know 5% less than a similarly qualified man of course you should do that as a business owner right that's how you make profits right yeah. <laughs> you keep your costs low mm-hmm. um and so I think sort of anecdotally, I think the fact that we don't see more of that happening probably suggests that it, there's not a whole lot of discrimination going on. The, the other possibility is that our markets are just so uncompetitive that firms don't have to keep their costs low. And I think in most industries, that's probably not true. Okay. So.
2: So when policymakers they see this, they see this this big scary number at the front end, and a lot of campaigns are built on that big scary number, or even when they drill down into the details and reach out to excellent economists who have done the work, and they still see that number. And they want to know they want something, they want to be able to do something about that. There is this 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 action bias in politics. You know, politicians see something going on in the economy that seems intuitively unfair and they want to offer a solution. So they can tell, go before voters and say, we've got a solution to this problem. I've delivered this for all the women in my district, in my state, in my nation. Um, What sort of policies do we see and are they effective in dealing with these problems?
0: Oh, um, let, me, let me maybe add one more piece of data before we kind of talk about this. So if we look at young workers, if we look yeah. at sort of new to the labor force workers, the gender gap is almost non-existent. And in some cities, women actually on average make more than men. Okay. okay. So most of this gap is happening about at childbearing age which is sort of consistent with this labor market story. Um, So we tend to see sort of policies that kind of are consistent with that, right? Mm -hmm. So if we want parents to be able to parent, then um, having some workplace flexibility would make work life easier for women, for mothers, um, and so we can see those kinds of policy. I think a lot of family leave policies look like this.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, do they work? I, I'll give you an example of what happened in academia. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the challenging thing for academics who want to have kids is the timing is terrible. Yeah. Right? So I, if you go straight through college and grad school, maybe you're finishing grad school in your late 20s. And you've got seven years, if you're lucky, to get tenure in their first institution, right? So you're hitting mid-30s. like You're hitting prime childbearing years during your career. Uh, It's a hard balance. And for a lot of women, academic women, it means they don't have children. Um, So schools adopt parental leave policies. You Mm -hmm. might get a semester off of teaching. You can spend, which maybe the private sector is way ahead of us on this. (laughs) So uh, it turns out this wasn't so good for women because yeah. what ends up happening is women take parental leave and care for their infants. Um, fathers take parental leave and write papers. Oh. And, <laughs> and so what ended up happening is that research standards kind of got elevated because, well, the productivity on average, you know, for, for men was going up and for women was – you know they're giving you a grace year or two on your tenure, so you have a little lo- mm. longer. But men were using that time to publish, and women were actually using that time as intended. On average, you know there are exceptions, but <laughs> so this is, this is
2: this is tragic, and this reminds me when I, when I was I was very much looking forward to this conversation to to, to drill down into these details. And there was one thing. There was a number of years ago in India, they passed a mandatory parental leave mm-hmm. legislation.
0: And other countries have it too. And
2: in yeah. India, you know, uh, you know, Prime Minister Modi was very excited about this, was, you know, India's leading the way. But when you dig down into it, the overwhelming majority of Indian women that are employed, that work, are, do so in the informal economy. They don't get, they aren't on anyone's payroll. This isn't to say they're not working. That's saying they're doing businesses out of their homes. They're doing, but they're not on anybody's payroll and there's nobody that can give them this leave. So what it ends up doing, you know, this does for certain Indian women, and these Indian women are overwhelmingly college educated, professional women in India, which are the overwhelming minority of women in India, end up receiving this benefit when the overwhelming number of women in the Indian labor market see no change from this policy. Um,
0: And it may have actually made employers less willing to hire women. Yeah. Right. Because knowing if they have children that you're going to have to offer them um, parental leave, that's a cost. Right, they've all of a sudden become more expensive, and we see kind of in the in the health insurance literature. This is vaguely related, I guess. Yeah. But, uh So, in, in states have prior to the Affordable Care Act, states adopt mandates to cover different conditions or different treatments, yeah. and so we might see a state adopt a, a mandate to cover. Um, uh, mammograms, sorry, blanking on the word, (laughs) mammograms or mandates to cover fertility treatments Mm -hmm. who who have a very observable target population, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we're primarily services that middle-aged women are consuming. And what we see in the wake of those insurance mandates is, well, if I have to offer health insurance to my employees that adds that extra benefit, it comes out of the women's wages. Mm -hmm. And so I think... A lot of laws end up working like this. It sounds really good if you assume nothing else changes. But, of course, everyone responds to those incentives, including the employers, uh, in terms of who they hire and how they compensate them. And I think the same thing happens uh, with parental leave. Sort of as people are responding, though, it's a cost to hire women if you then also have to offer parental leave. Mm
2: -hmm. So, So One of the things that really changed in the past couple of years is, you know, a lot of companies are now allowing folks to work from home because they built out an infrastructure in response to the COVID pandemic that, uh, you know, that, you know, there are now procedures, there are now, you know, all of those, all of those, you know, you know. All of those things that you need to make a, a workplace, a, a functional remote workplace, got built out. And a lot of folks and many companies, you know, uh, they are continuing to maintain that option for employees, at least for part of the work week, if not, you know, entirely. Is that anything that we've had enough time to, for, for researchers to dig into
0: not that I've seen, but I'm I'm expecting it to come. So survey yeah. data takes all of that. Oh, survey yes. data takes a while to get released. But um, my suspicion is that the shift to having more flexible work has been good for women. Um, I think uh, uh, just I'll share sort of what my work life looked yeah. like with an infant in the house, right? I would get, get up, do the kid thing, take him to daycare, work bring them home from three to seven. So I worked a very short day, um, do family stuff, put them to bed early and then work again. So I'd work again from eight to 10 o'clock at night or something absurd like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the hours got done, the yeah. work got done. It just wasn't sort of a traditional looking work day um, because that was what worked for me in that season of my life. Uh, and I, and I think um, for a lot of uh, not just mothers, I think it's probably good for lots of different people who have other interests outside of work that have kind of limited time schedules. But I think it's particularly good for women to have that kind of flexibility um, in the, in their work hours, and maybe in their work location as well. Obviously, not ever, every job can be done at home. But for those that can, uh, I, I suspect has been very good for women.
2: So one of the one of the interesting things you see about in these debates, when people do drill down into these numbers and see what these disparities can be attributed to outside of discrimination, you have certain folks, particularly particularly feminists, who take a look at these differences in preferences in terms of preferences for caring professions in terms of, um, uh, the different sort of burdens, cultural expectations for who childcare providers should be and those sorts of things. And they see these disparities, well, these disparities might not be, you know, the sort of discrimination that's a sort of obvious, you know, somebody sitting down in the boardroom and deciding, oh, we're going to pay her less but they see this as the product of, of, of a cultural problem. Um, how do you respond as an economist to those sorts of things, which is really, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not arguing that your numbers are wrong. It's not arguing that, but it's making a, a, sort of, a, sort of, a sort of moral case that this tells us that there's something wrong with our culture.
0: So I think that if if women are more likely to prefer being in a caring profession and men just love engineering more than women do uh, and they sort into those professions, then that's fine. That's great. If people should do um, what best leads to their own human flourishing. I think the problem is sort of as you say is why are they making those choices? If is it out of their true preference or is it because going into your intro to computer science class in college as one of, you know, 10 percent of women in the class feels just unwelcoming to you? Yeah. And I think that's sort of the underlying question, To the extent that male dominated professions are unwelcoming to women or vice versa, are yeah. female dominated professions unwelcoming to men. I think both of those are things that we can think about sort of in our professions uh, and in our communities.
2: Yeah. So that's a thing that gets into, you know, educational culture, workplace culture.
0: Um, and those Even th- in your neighborhood, yeah. right? If yeah. your friend's son says, hey, I want to go be a nurse. Like, are you like, oh, cool. Or are you like, wow, you're sort of yeah. weird, right? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, Or, if, you know... I had a friend who's a stay-at-home father or primary caregiver for yeah. his kids. And, you know, his immediate response in sort of having that get-to-know-you conversation is to be defensive, like, oh, I have a sugar mama and all, you know, sort of making light of it. And it's, yeah. But if this were okay, mm-hmm. right, if it were socially acceptable for him to be the primary caregiver or for your neighbor's son to be a nurse or, or for my mother to have been a civil engineer or whatever, right, yeah. like, then... We need to make it so, right? Like we yeah. can't make fun of people for making non-gendered, gender-typical choices, yeah. right? Um, how much of it's unwelcoming environment? You know, economists are really bad at measuring that, so. Yeah. It's,
2: <laughs> um, it's hard to tell, but. That
0: one's a harder challenge, but it is, it is, even in economics, a debate is, can we control for occupation? Yeah. If that's also part of different choices.
2: So there's – because there's a lot – and you know, I'm thinking about this. There's a lot in everyone's work lives that's really hard to explain to people. That's that – it's, you know, part of it is, you know, oh, you know, yes, professions are different. But also like individual company cultures, um, all, you know uh, – you know, larger subcategories, you know, that we talked about, you know, for profit versus nonprofit, but there's other, there's other things are different
0: than small firms. And I mean, we can think about, um, or just what company culture looks like. Right. And maybe better sorting into that is also important for men and women.
2: So are there any sort of empirical tools or models that you're excited about that might be able to provide us A more granular look at these things in the future. Um, So, you know, what are the sort of studies you see as a labor economist that you're like, this is exciting and interesting? Very cool. This gives me (laughs) something to think about, maybe employ in my own research or.
0: Well, so I think like we have really good data on um, kind of occupational characteristics, sort of that's kind of well coded and. well-observed. There's some good studies that look at kind of firm employee matching. I think that's really interesting. Um, I I really find, and and this is somewhat facilitated by kind of how people look for jobs these days. I love sort of people who go and do these audit studies where they like send out, they mock up a bunch of CVs, resumes, and with you know, female names and male names, and different mm-hmm. educational characteristics, and just kind of randomize everything, and just send them out, and see who gets called. Yeah. Right. Because if it's if what's happening is that um, employers are less willing to hire a woman, mm-hmm. or uh, then then we ought to see it at that moment. Yeah. Right. Um, and and I think because we use so much technology to apply for jobs these days, they can do this kind of in mass. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find those thrilling. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I think there was a study, I'm trying to remember exactly the details that did something similar ish for, um, the academic labor market. Um, and I think economists were even on likelihood of calling men and women and everyone else favored the other profession, other fields that they looked at favored women, That's interesting. um, And so I think we're kind of at that point where things are – things look pretty good for women. Yeah. Maybe not in the raw numbers but in sort of daily experiences.
2: You know, I'm thinking – I mean part of this is just when people are conscious of these things, it allows them to take – um, sort of proactive action. And sometimes that's, that's really hard to know what to do. And it's hard to know those effects, but I'm thinking of like, um, you know, a lot of orchestras do like the blind auditions now where, you know, they used to have you perform in front of the folks that, you know, and obviously, you know, they can see you, they can know, you know, um, you know, know your gender. Um, and, and now they do those, you know, blind where they you know, there's some sort of obscured screen or something like that. So there, there are proactive steps that people can take.
0: And you could do that as a, you know, if you were screening applications, you can, for the most part, screen a lot of things without looking at people's names, mm-hmm. right? If you, if your system were set up that way, and that would provide you an opportunity to kind of remove that um, any potential bias you might have.
2: In fact, I know I know uh, some academic journals or conferences that this is standard procedure when they're a- evaluating papers. Is they will they will they will take out those names and it's and not in because it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't just guard against gender discrimination, but you know uh, discrimination based on institutional affiliation. You know some institutions are more prestigious than others, but that should not affect. How you evaluate that scholarship? Because people at all sorts of institutions can make very valuable contributions. It also, you know, uh, uh, eliminates bias for people's fame, reputation, prior publications. Because you know there are people that publish excellent contributions once, and maybe that's that. Maybe that was the thing that they were going to do. Um, but there, you know, there are other people that you know they they ride on that reputation. So.
0: Let me add one other policy that's, I think, been shown to be somewhat beneficial, which are rules about pay transparency. So, like, if you know kind of how much other people with your job title are making, that tends to be good for women. Um, I think in many cases, women don't know they're being paid less than the man across the hall with the same title. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And it gives them some evidence to take to ask for a raise and say, right, like...
2: so th- th- this is the other question because so much of so much of life is a negotiation, <laughs> um, and salary and employment is a negotiation. Is there evidence that men and women negotiate differently? Um, yeah.
0: Well, so for a long time, that's probably the advice women were given most often: is that women are less likely to negotiate at the point of hire. Yeah. Um, and negotiating, you know, if you, if your initial salary is even just a little bit higher, because most raises are a percentage, it affects your sort of lifetime raises as well. So it can make a big difference to have a, even a modest increase at the beginning of your career. And women are less likely to negotiate. So there was a big push for a long time to teach women how to negotiate, to make them feel more comfortable with it. Um, There's, I'm laughing a little because this is like a very typical economist kind of paper, but I, <laughs> so there's a paper that came out um, that sort of dug dug into this kind of should women negotiate more. And it turns out that when um, when you encourage women to negotiate more, they're less successful. Like they yeah. don't they're much less likely to get that increase when they negotiate. So it's actually optimal for women to negotiate a little bit less than men do because. It's, there's not as much of a payoff for them in negotiating, yeah. uh, which is, you know, it's like good news, bad news, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and that's where that
2: that transparency maybe is a yes, better solution.
0: It's, it's a better solution, solution to thinking about, um, well, we have the same title, you know, we can compare our work products and present a case to our employer about whether that's, whether we're being compensated fairly. Yeah. So.
2: Is there anything else, any, any other puzzles in the labor market that you think we don't maybe have really really good answers to, but are really really good questions that are being asked?
0: Uh, well, let me share one other data point, which I I think is interesting and sort of challenges the potential for policy solutions. I think which yeah. so. So men are more likely to work a, a long hours. So long hours is like fifty or more hours a week. Yep. So they're ten, more likely to overwork than are women, um, which in some professions is just means they get paid for the extra hours, yeah. right? So if you work fifty percent more than the woman next to you, then maybe you get paid fifty percent more, and that's that seems fine. Right? Yeah. Your wages should work out similarly. But in some professions, the fact that people work long hours has a big return. Mm -hmm. So for lawyers is a good example. Uh, There's a really beautiful paper by Claudia Golden that's sort of digging into what happens with lawyers. And it turns out when you want to talk to a lawyer about your case, you want to talk to your lawyer about your case. So it matters to the client that their lawyer works long hours. Mm -hmm. So lawyers who work 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week get paid disproportionately more. Uh, their hourly rate is significantly higher than lawyers who work sort of more typical work weeks. Um, but it makes sense, right? There's a benefit to the client. Yeah, They're willing to pay for it, but that means that those people who are willing to work long hours get paid more. And I think for a lot of women who have preferences about how they spend their work time or how many hours they choose to work. Um, getting around that's just not feasible, yeah. right? Um, I, I think we could have more conversations about what parenting looks like in the home, sort of how much of that's uh, the mother's responsibility or the father's responsibility. And But I, I think if we're, or we could just be okay with the fact that like, I work fewer hours, I enjoy my family and the time I spend doing my leisure hobbies, (laughs) whatever they might be, uh, and I'm okay if that means that I get paid a little bit less, right? Because there are other things in my life that matter than my work, right? I love my job. Uh, I have a wonderful job and I enjoy doing it, but I also like to do lots of other things with my life. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't—they I, don't owe me payment for doing all those other things in my life either, right?
2: I so, can't—I can't think of, about a better way to end a conversation about labor economics to say that there's a lot, there's, there's, you know, that there's more to life than work, um, and that's something that I think I think we should all all keep in mind. I think it was Frank Knight. Um, is it Frank Knight who said uh, no, it was Ross Emmett writing about Frank Knight, I think He said that you know, you know, all of life is economic, but not, but economics is not all of life.
0: Mm. That's lovely.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us and uh, and and giving us a really good picture of what is a very complicated, and uh, fascinating market.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.